on today's show. We're always looking for ways to make disciples among all the nations, but what if the way to make disciples is happening on Sunday morning? Liturgy historically has never been about order. It's been about content. And when you study the history of liturgy, you realize that it's been about forming liturgical subjects. The different forms of liturgy throughout history have had different content, and so they've had different effects. If you are referring to theology that is not sound, it's not forming you well. If you're participating in that, you know, in whatever form, then that's going to impact how you see yourself and how you see Christ first and foremost, and then how you see yourself in Christ and how you see the church and its role in the world and its role in mission. But that's not order. It's content. We sit down with ABWE missionaries Melissa Baccarella and Andy Mesmer on today's show. Coming up in one moment. Welcome to the Missions Podcast, the show that explores your hard questions on missions, theology, and practice to help goers think and thinkers go. I'm Alex Kochman, Director of Advancement and Communications with ABWE, joined by Scott Dunford, West Coast Advancement Coordinator and Pastor of Redeemer Church in Fremont, California, a man of many titles. We're so glad to be here with you today. And it's a ministry. It's not just a podcast, it's a ministry. You can help by going to missionspodcast.com slash support if this has been a blessing to you. But the greatest blessing that you can give us is to share the show and to leave it a positive rating and a five-star review in your podcast platform of choice. But enough about that, Scott. You and I were just at uh, Cedarville University together capturing some content, interviews with Matt Bennett, Dan DeWitt, Thomas White, friends of ours. Um, You rested up, jet lag uh, done, (laughs) or still suffering from it actively? Uh, today I feel uh, so much better, but it has been an absolute struggle. But we had a great time, and it was enjoy- enjoyable to be there and and uh, have some great conversations about ministry. And but I'm also glad to be back home for sure. The struggle is real. Hey, shout out to our new uh, producer uh, Nathaniel Estevez has joined the team. And uh, if things sound better lately, it's because he actually knows what he's doing with audio in a way that I don't. So with that said, though, we have a returnee to the show and a new friend, don't we, Scott? Yeah, it's so good to have Andy Mesmer uh, back on the show. Uh, we had a great conversation about, about the history of the gospel in Spain and, uh, and and just some of those cultural and historical aspects of that ministry. But it also sparked a whole like another line of discussion and questioning about the use of liturgy, especially uh, in in multicultural settings, and uh, and so to kind of expand that and bring that in, we have another scholar joining us and another uh, missionary serving in another place in Western Europe, uh, serving in Italy, and we'll let her talk about a little bit where she's ministering and serving. But but, but I'm sorry, Melissa, I, my Italian is not where it needs to be, so I'll let you uh, correct my pronunciation. But but Melissa Beccaria, and uh, she is serving in in Italy, and uh, so. Melissa, why don't you tell us a little bit about yourself, correct my pronunciation, tell me what a bad uh, Italian I would end up being, and uh, how you ended up serving in Italy and what you're doing there. You're a bad Italian, Scott. I, I would I would, I would, would love to be Italian. <laughs> There's so many cool things about being Italian, but uh, yes, no, I'm not. <laughs> you can't take the Wisconsin <laughs> accent out of this Californian. Well, the, f- the food is for sure one of them. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you, Scott and Alex. Uh <laughs> Yeah, my last name is pronounced Baccarella. Um, I do have a, a funny story quickly about that in terms of uh, growing up. Uh, nobody in America could pronounce my name correctly. Um, and I, I'm not even sure I cr- pronounced my name correctly when I was growing up. Um, and they always said, you know, Baccarella. And uh, I would um, 
always have to spell it, you know, B A B as in boy, A C C A R E L L A. Um, and it just was the standard thing to do when somebody needed to know my name. And I just remember when I arrived in Italy in 2003, uh, that uh, one of the, the first things I did was take pictures uh, of the new place where I was serving. And I remember going to a, a photo um, shop, you know, this was, uh, man, I'm aging myself here, you know, when you actually had film developed, my goodness. <laughs> so anyway, but I had the film developed and I remember the, uh, I, I remember the, um, you know, person, uh, you know, at the, at the desk said, you know, uh, your name, please. And I, and I pronounced it and, uh, she just wrote it immediately correctly. Um, because, uh, it was an Italian name and she was Italian and she didn't have any problem understanding what I had said or how to spell it immediately. Beautiful. So I just remember having that moment of feeling connected, um, and yet having so far to go still to understand the culture. And, uh, and I, now it's, you know, some almost 19 years later, and I still feel like I'm trying to understand, you know, key aspects of the culture in which I'm serving. Well, that's what we want to talk about a little bit here today. So Italy is unique. Let's just talk about Europe in general. You heard our ad at the beginning talking about where the unreached are. We, we, we tend to think of it as the bush or this remote tribal place or the Islamic world. Then there's Europe. Europe needs missionaries. We believe that firmly. But what's different culturally about being a missionary in Europe? Well, uh, you know, I, I think probably anywhere in the world, there are certain assumptions, you know, that take place. And you need to learn what they are. It's fair to assume. Yes. <laughs> and, uh, um, but I would say that in Italy, you're walking into a place where there's already a particular tradition, which would be the same probably in any other place, but it's a particular tradition. It's a Christian tradition. And so hmm. uh, maybe not the way we would always in the evangelical community describe Christian, um, but still uh, you're walking into a place where there's already an established tradition that many people consider Christian, uh, that the, all the people around you consider Christian. And it's a loaded one. Um, you know, when you begin to have conversations, you know, sometimes, not all the time, you're using a lot of the same vocabulary. You talk about grace. They say grace. You say salvation. They say salvation. You say Jesus. They say Jesus. Um, and But fundamentally, you realize that you're talking about two different things. Uh, and so it takes subtlety and learning how to really listen to the people around you and beginning to have different kinds of conversations so that you can go under the surface of what those terms are and what those you know, meanings are in order to understand the person that you're communicating with. So, Andy, you're in Spain. Um, do, you, do, you, do, you, do you find yourself resonating uh, with, with what Melissa is describing there? Yeah, I do. Um, that's that's similar to how how I would talk about things. I mean, it's just it's just really, <laughs> and I, I, I'll just say this again at the beginning, and I'll probably reiterate it many times. I'm very theoretical. And I'm not very practical, so I'm really sorry if I leave people in the clouds. But that's just where I live all day. So, uh, but you know, <laughs> like when when we think about the the culture that we're stepping into and the Christian and the the the, the 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 I don't know what you would call I guess the Christian tradition. Um, without, you know, making a value statement on whether it's true Christian or not, but just the, tr the Christian tradition that we're stepping into, it has been the same since about the fourth or fifth century. So, I mean, we're talking about massive long-term habituation into a way of viewing quote unquote Christianity. And when an, like someone like me, a Baptist and evangelical, when we walk into the world, um, we're, we're, we're thinking more along the times, uh, along the lines of like a first century Christianity, second century Christianity, maybe even a third century Christianity. 
uh, where we just kind of feel more 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 comfortable on, on those grounds. Because so. they were all Baptists then. That's <laughs> yeah, exactly. why we feel exactly they were all Baptists. <laughs> Actually, they were all oh, they were all Baptists. Baptists. <laughs> they were all Baptists. Even better. Yes. Yeah. The really good ones were. Um, so you know, I it's but yeah, I would say that the 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 same thing is that we on the one hand, and this we've always said this as Protestants on the one hand, which is why the the Reformation in some ways was so tragic because on the one hand we do share so much in common with with people here. I mean, you know, a common ethic and you know belief in one God and belief in in Jesus and what He did on the cross. And on the other hand, at at some other really crucial key points, especially when we talk about the forgiveness of sins. And, you know, some other things, I mean, that's really, for me, the, the, the center point of the, of the debate, you know, how do we get forgiveness of sins? When we talk about that, that's when things just really get kind of tragic from our perspective, from an evangelical Protestant perspective, when there's not this really clear, you know, Romans, you know, book of Romans, we're all sinners, and we desperately need scandalous forgiveness and grace in Christ. It's just not, they just don't mm-hmm. see it like that. They don't understand it like that. And so that's where we work down to it. Yeah, well, one of the reasons they don't see it like that, however, is because, you know, uh, is because the Roman Catholic view of uh, of salvation, well, of grace in particular, is that, you know, grace improves. It doesn't uh, resurrect you know, uh, they think of, uh, you know, they think of sin as something that gets you down and you need improvement. You know, it, it, it hurts you and you need to recover and you need to improve, but it doesn't, they don't view sin as it, it, it kills you and you need to be reborn. You need to be resurrected, uh, in order to experience life in Christ. And so as long as you think of salvation as improvement, I think mm. that's where, one of the fundamental differences occurs. That, that's a good. That's a good point. Yeah. Do we do we have time to just no. comment on that a little more? Not, not at all. Yeah, t- yeah. Tease that out just a little bit. <laughs> <laughs> I, I don't want. I, I know this, this is about liturgy, and so I don't want to get off it too much. But so well, you 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 have to worship what you know. So let's help goers <laughs> think and thinkers go. Yeah. So what 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 happened, especially with Aquinas, I mean, this was before Aquinas, but especially with Aquinas in the 13th century, is with the rediscovery of, of Aristotle in the West, um, people began, to, and this was a very slow process, and we don't even have enough time on this podcast to go into all of it, but it was a slow podcast of the, uh, uh, of the Western church assimilating uh, 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 Aristotle's understanding of justification, which and, and morality, which is morality through habituation. So, uh, Aquinas, uh, I keep on saying Aquinas. Uh, Aristotle would say, you know, if you want to be a baker, what do you do? Well, you start acting like a baker until you actually achieve being a baker. You know, if you want to be a carpenter, what do you do? Well, you start doing things that a carpenter would do until you can be a carpenter. And this was transposed uh, transposed onto the the Christian view of justification. So you want to be just, but what are the things you do? Well, you start doing just things until you actually become a just person. And that is the, the, the Roman Catholic system of, of or how they approach uh, justification. And that was how it was up until the Reformation, when Martin Luther said, this is not how the Bible uses the term justification at, at all. It's something that God imputes to us in spite of us not being able to to." Um, to, 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 to do it. So uh, yeah, absolutely. What Melissa you're saying is, is absolutely true. 
the question is <laughs> whose understanding of justification is, is correct? Is it the Roman Catholic as they have appropriated uh, Aristotle, or is it the Protestant view as they have gone back to to, 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 to Scripture? But yeah, that, that's it's 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 two fundamentally different ways of approaching the issue of justification. So that's that, that's so. that's fascinating. <laughs> that's important as we talk about some of the liturgical issues, purely because we have to be aware that none of these systems are neutral. So we might be thinking about worship and church planting and how can we do something that's biblically faithful that might be even more likely to resonate in a particular cultural context. And it's just a matter of remembering that these things call to mind all of these gospel issues. And so there's no style of worship that's completely neutral. And I think that's important as we go on to talk about liturgy, right, Scott? Yeah. So, so Melissa, I have a que- you know, a question kind of getting down, kind of getting down that road a little bit. So, you know, as you're serving in Italy, you know, and certainly Andy in Spain, and, and as we were to travel all over continental Europe and see the, the you, you had mentioned before the, the culture of Christianity that was laid there for thousands of years, uh, or well over a thousand years. Um, how much of a cultural imprint do you think of Roman Catholicism still remains in the place where you're serving? Well, the cultural imprint is is per- pervasive. <laughs> uh, it's everywhere. Now, uh, how people relate to that uh, depends on the person. Um, but the cultural imprint, the matrix or the grid, if you will, is there. And everybody is sort of swimming in those waters, whether they have an, antico- an antagonistic or a practicing relationship, um, you know, with the Roman Catholic Church. Now, I'm in Northwest Italy, and uh, I'm in a town where there are not a large number of practicing Catholics. Um, but just because a person is not practicing doesn't mean that that's not their primary point of reference on questions of, you know, uh, that uh, have to do with spirituality or with religion. Um, so, you know, in any case, no matter who you're speaking with, you're going to, that's the grid. And that's the point in which, you know, that's your, your entry point in terms of relating with them. That's whatever education they've had. Usually it's coming from that perspective, even if they're not practicing. So um, for sure, that that's an issue. However, I would say, you know, I, I have a, a number of Catholic friends here in the town where I live, which is uh, called Cazelle. And, uh, you know, and they... Um, you know, they now this happened a few years ago, but they did a, you know, an informal survey just to see how many people in the town were actually attending the church. And, you know, it was less than 10 percent of the town. Wow. Um, and even that less than 10 percent, you know, that wasn't regular weekly attendance. You know, that wasn't regularly going to the mass every week. That was necess- that You know, that could have been just attending the funerals or it could have been. Um, you know, uh, for the holidays, you know, going to, um, you know, uh, a Christmas Eve vigil or something like that, or an Easter service, um, which had more to do perhaps with their family's tradition than it had to do with, you know, their understanding of what the significance of those holy days is about, or a, a, a genuine desire to worship Christ. Um, so, you know, uh, uh, yes, that's the grid. And then, on top of that, there are a lot of people that are alienated from that. Um, and so, but in any case, when you speak with them, that's their primary point of reference. And so you have to go through that, you know, through that, um, uh, you know, passage with them. So when we talk about 
bringing the gospel to bear and planting a church in a Christianized culture with as much of that baggage, theological and cultural baggage, as you're talking about in a place like Italy or Spain. Um, do those cultural and faith artifacts that that remain from from Christendom, from Roman Catholicism, uh, from from all of that deeply ingrained uh, culture and tradition, is that is that a help in communicating the gospel for each of you? Is that helpful for you to to springboard off of, or is it a barrier? Would you almost rather be working with people with no understanding of Christianity or the gospel in terms of effectiveness of of ease of communicating? what we believe to be the biblical gospel. Absolutely. I have found it helpful to um, look at these, uh, what he called artifacts, um, and, uh, and, and, and to adapt them. Uh, you know, when I began mm. to study liturgy, um, uh, well, basically what happened was I, I was, it was when I was doing my master's degree and I was taking a biblical spirituality, cl- uh, biblical spirituality class. And uh, the assignment you know, was to write a paper um, choose uh, some sort of Christian spirituality with which you had no, um, with that, with which you had, you know, no familiarity, and and then to look at that and to learn from that example. And I remember, uh, is there anything in that foreign sort of type of Christian spirituality that you can learn and that you can apply apply in your own in your own ministry? And I just remember uh, feeling frustrated with the list that they had given us. Uh, not that the list was exhaustive or that, you know, we couldn't choose something off the list, but I just couldn't find anything on the list that interested me. And I remember saying to the professor in an aside, yeah, but the thing I want to study isn't here. And he said, well, what is it that you want to study? And I said, time. And he said, what do you mean? What do you want? Why do you want to study time? And I said, because I don't feel like people have time anymore to believe the gospel. And, um, and that's what led me to liturgy. Uh, I discovered Mm -hmm. in it a theology of time. Um, at least initially for me, it wasn't about, um, uh, uh, retrieving artifacts, um, you know, or even specifically trying to, um, you know, adapt aspects of Roman Catholic liturgical worship. I mean, I came to understand those and look at those more closely afterwards. Um, but uh-huh. that's, wasn't my entry point, uh, into a conversation about liturgy. Um, I began my search looking for a theology of time, uh, and, and, and then I began to learn things after that. So, um, I know that Andy during his first podcast with you or the, 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 I don't know if it was his first, but the last conversation you had, uh, you know, that he talked about the apostles creed. So, you know, for us, that is the absolute same thing. We have incorporated that into our services here. So, you know, our church, you know, uh, now the way we adapted it, um, and I think this is a really important point um, before I describe the thing with the creed is, is just that um, when I did begin after I finished that paper, you know, I began to look at liturgy as, a, you know, yes, a theology of time, but sort of holy rhythms, you know, that are a subversive way to live in the current world. 
you know, uh, to which our primary focus is always on the person of Christ and that story of which we are a part. It's something that forms us. It gives us our identity. It helps us to understand who we are in this big redemptive story of the world. Um, For me, it's about conferring Christian identity. That's what liturgy is about. Um, And there are practical applications that help that formation occur. Um, But Ultimately, for me, it's about identity and time and how we experience time and flow through it and make use of it. Um, So anyway, so, you know, the creed was one of the ways to do that. Um, You know, but uh, again, when I did begin to study more of the history of liturgy, and for me, it wasn't so much like, I mean, I'm, uh, you know, I'm really impressed when I hear uh, Andy speak about, you know, church history. Um, That's not an avenue that I've taken uh, in my own studies. Um, So he knows so much more about that than I do. Um, At the same time, when I did look at the history of liturgy, I was looking specifically at its form and content. Um, and, and the actual structure of liturgy, that's what I studied. Um, so I went in a different direction with the, with, you know, with my study of liturgy. And, and so when I studied those things, one of the prime examples that came forward for me, um, was Thomas Cranmer, uh, with the English Reformation. And I, and I remember just being amazed, um, you know, that really, when you look at the history of liturgy, you're looking at a story of adaptation. And that means that even when you take that artifact, you're responsible to adapt it so that the, the theology is sound. And, and you have that freedom when you look at the history of liturgy to completely adapt it, you know, to, to, to retrieve and retain and then adapt and be creative and, and, and see uh, just how beautiful it is. Uh, to see how that works in the lives of Christians today. And yes, when Italians come into our church, there can be an element of familiarity there, you know, that they can, you know, we're a house church. (laughs) So it's already a strange experience for them to come into our church service for that Mm. reason alone, you know, but then there can be these elements which they, you know, which Uh, create this moment of familiarity where they realize, you know, that they're not frequenting a cult, (laughs) you know, where it it taps into sort of what you might say a a primal memory um, or, you know, or religious memory or cultural memory for them. And so it seems less strange. And so, yes, it can have that positive impact for sure. Um, so uh, I'm going to stop, but I could say much more on this point. I was going to say something about the creed and then also something about confession, um, and the calendar. So I, I just, I could talk like this forever. So you need to stop me. <laughs> well, I'm, I'm, I'm just going to pause you for just a second because I think, it, you know, I, I don't want to pre- presuppose that everyone knows all the things that we're, that you're talking about here, you know? So one, I think it's important and, and you can, you can, uh, go, go deeper on that, but like, Liturgy is just an order, right? And every church has a liturgy. Sometimes people get freaked out because they think, oh, like liturgy means you're trying to be Roman Catholic or something like that. Well, you know, the, the independent fundamental Baptist churches I grew up in had a liturgy. We, you know, we knew that there was going to be the welcome song. We're all shaking hands with strangers. And, you know, and then there's going to be a, a time of announcements. There's going to be a couple songs and an offering. And and uh, then after the preaching, there's going to be another song and an altar call, you know, and 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 there, there was a liturgy to that. Like, even though no one ever called it liturgy, it was a form or an order that was kind of expected and, and flowed. 
So you really can't get away from the fact that every church has a type of, of liturgy, I would at least put out there. Um, what, what I hear you talking about. I disagree with you. Okay, well, that's fine. Uh, so ironically, right. Scott, for, for this, what's funny is, Scott, I don't. So okay. I know that's not well, super common. Um, well, you know, <laughs> well, I mean, M- M- Melissa's highly educated and far more educated than I am. Oh, my things. gosh. So, so you... even when I agree with you, I can't win. I'm I'm sorry. I'm lost. I give up, Scott. <laughs> yeah, so, I'm sorry, Alec. Um, uh, I, I, I had a I had a thought. I didn't want to lose my thought, even though you're trying to get me off here. Um, distraction. But what I do hear you saying that I, even if we disagree on the definition of liturgy, um, uh, is you're, you're trying to look for an inten- intentional ways to help people not only identify with Christ, but also grow and be discipled as what does it mean to be a Christian and not just what does it mean to be a Christian uh, in your unique cultural setting and what does it mean to be a Christian in the 21st century, but like, what is it always meant to be a Christian and, and how do we engage with with Christians over over since since Christ established the church, so I'm gonna just gonna kind of pitch it back to you, Melissa. You can go ahead and tear my my definition to shreds and whatever else you, whatever else you want to do with that. Uh, but uh, how I, I'm gonna push the question: How has how have you seen uh, liturgy in the church help form disciples? And maybe eventually you can get to that you know that part of the question. Go ahead. Uh, thank you. Uh, well, I, I wasn't trying to be rude by saying I disagree. I, I, I'm proud. You weren't rude. Oh, not, not at all. I love that. It's fine. I, I, I guess what I meant to say is strangely enough, you started your, your, your comment and then I, and I disagreed with where you started, but then by the time you finished, I thought actually you'd come around to some planks, you know, where we would be agree- right. in agreement. Um, the, uh, you know, what I disagreed with is the fact that liturgy is an order of service. Uh, what you're talking about, what you described is accurate, but I would call it a program, not liturgy. Okay. Um, it's, it's a program that you follow, an order that you go in, sure. But uh, liturgy historically has never been about order. It's been about content. Um, And when you study the history of liturgy, you realize that it's been about forming liturgical subjects, forming Christian subjects. It's discipleship, and it always has been. Now, uh, the different forms of liturgy throughout history have had different content, and so they've had different effects. Um, If you are reciting or part of a responsorial, or if you're referring to theology that is not sound, it's not forming you well. It's uh, part, you know, part, you know, if you're, if you're participating in that, if you're reciting it, if you're memorizing it, you know, in whatever form, um, and there are different forms you know, then that's going to, that's going to impact how you see yourself and how you see Christ first and foremost, and then how you see yourself in Christ and how you see the church and its role in the world and, it, uh, and its role in mission. Um, but that's not order. It's content. It's, it's, it's discipleship. So I, that, that's where we disagree. Um, having said that, so in what way is it discipleship? Well, I would say though, even though it was unintentional, yes, I feel like I'm well corrected by your, by your, uh, I think what you said added a lot of light to me, what I was thinking. But I, but I would say, and maybe you would agree with this, is that the, the order that we did use, or I used growing up, did actually inform my theology. And it did contain and do something in the way I was formed in a way that sometimes was helpful, sometimes less helpful. But I'm sorry, I didn't mean to just... Right, because there's no contentless worship. Yeah. Fair point. And, and there's no orderless worship. So I, 
I th- um, regardless, I don't want to you know the, uh, oh, oh, there. Yeah, there's there's an individual who has wisely said that the person who's most enslaved to their traditions is the person who's not aware that they have any. Hmm. You know, so I think there's, you know, there's there's large mega churches that think that they've deconstructed it. And all they've really done is build a contextualized liturgy to a, um, you know, a highly affluent consumeristic um, North American, you know, suburban subculture. Right. And so, yeah, I, I think what we're we're actually doing in this project and Melissa, maybe this sets you up for how you'd like to respond. But I think what we're getting at here is that if we're willing to draw upon the resources of the historic liturgies that that the Christian church has used through the ages. I think we'll find orders of worship and content of worship that uh, is more is closer to being transcultural than a lot of the deconstructed non what what we think is is non-liturgical um, in in our contemporary sense, you know, at the pop sense of what that means. Um, but if we were to go back on history, I think that that, has a higher sense, uh, a higher odds of being transcultural than what we create now, and what kind of grows up through the mega church, through the church growth movements, um, and and even in some missiology that's that's highly contextualized, um, you know, and I, I might be able to build a, a style of of worship and 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 create content in a way that maybe makes sense to you know someone coming from a Muslim background or from this background or another, but. Is that even giving them a sense of what historically does it mean to be a Christian and to worship together with the Christian church through the ages? If uh, if, if if I could just jump in here real quickly, and, I'm, and Melissa can answer the question, but just as long as we're kind of on this, this kind of important digression, I, I think that a case can be made um, that whether we want to or not, we are going to be liturgical. Um, and just so the listeners know, um, in Acts 13, 2, when the Bible says that uh, the church there in Antioch was worshiping the Lord, the Greek word behind the word worshiping is liturgieo. That's where we get the word liturgy from. They were they were liturgizing. <laughs> so it's not it's not it's not a it's not a bad word. Um, but uh, so I, like. I, I, so let me say just a couple of things and with, and I'm not going to draw any type of a value uh, judgment on it. I'm just uh, observationally what's going on like in America right now. And I'm not too up to speed, but from what I get over here in Spain, um, I think what we're seeing in uh, the, our culture in kind of like the secular American culture, it, it's very fascinating to see how much what they are doing reflects what <laughs> so many Christians have done uh, for such a long time. And, and I'm kind of stealing this from people like Jonathan Pajot and <clears throat> James Smith, but people are processing in the streets, you know. Um, <clears throat> they have pictures of their saints th- that they want to idealize. Um, you know, they have their catechisms, uh, you know, brief, short um, answers, uh, questions and answers. And there are, there are right answers and there are wrong answers. Um, you know, they have... Um, you know, if you go to a, a basketball game, football game, um, there is liturgy at the at, at at there. You will stand up when the flag is displayed. You will take your hat off. You will put your hand over your heart. You will say the words, uh, and you will cheer afterwards. I mean, there, there there's a certain cadence to these things. Even even something like a mall, 
uh, it, it reflects a lot of the, the idea of a medieval church, you know, with uh, beautiful uh, inviting doors, uh, images of, of what you want to be. Uh, people will take care of your kids, um, you know, a, a place to connect with friends. I mean, this is all what we do at, 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 at church. Um, so what, what, I'm, what I'm trying to get at is I, I just, I, I, I wonder. So I'm leaving myself a back door in case it's not right. <laughs> but I wonder um, if God has made us uh, liturgical beings. And, and what I mean by liturgical beings is that the, the dynamic of worship, so the dynamic of worship is revelation and response, revelation and response. So God reveals himself to us, yeah. and then we respond in an adequate way. That's what we see all throughout Scripture. God works mightily in history, and his people respond in song and in obedience and all the rest. It's, it's, revela- it's revelation and then response. And if we, look, if we think of a church service as revelation and response, and if we put that into the words of, of liturgy, I just, I just wonder if, you know, liturgy embodying our beliefs and then even corporately embodying our beliefs, uh, if, if it's inevitable, no matter what we believe, if we're Baptist, Presbyterian, Anglican, whatever, we are embodying um, into our liturgy what yeah. we believe. And the question isn't, are we going to have liturgy? Are we not going to have liturgy? It's just, what do we really value? That's what we're going to put in our service. Um, and so, and well, I'll, I'll stop there before I like critique anyone or talk bad about Baptist. <laughs> and I speak as a Baptist and I, and I, and I, and I, you know, I revere our tradition. I'm very thankful for what the Lord has done through the Baptist tradition. I speak as an insider, um, not as an outsider, but um, I, that, that, those are just kind of some of my thoughts that we've been talking about this. I just, I, I, if it's if liturgy is a is a good thing because God has made it inevitable that we will reflect how He responds Himself to us. Melissa, let me uh, ask you a practical question: How have you seen this approach to worship in your context with your team? Have you seen that help people? Have you seen how have you seen that better communicate the gospel to lost yeah. people? Thank you. Um, that book, You Are What You Love by James K. Smith is excellent. And that's what uh, Andy was uh, referring to there. It's a wonderful mm-hmm. book. Yeah. And uh, so, yes, I, I love that's a lovely thought, you know, that it's about what do you, you know, so then what 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 do we value? What are we passionate about? And, and letting that be the content of our liturgy. So I, I agree with that. The um, in terms of the practical, uh, you know, so we started this conversation talking about the just uh, completely different uh, perspectives on justification and grace, right? And so, uh, for instance, uh, we have here in our Caselli Church incorporated or adapted, if you will, um, what is um, in the tradition referred to as the great prayer of thanksgiving. <laughs> and uh, and this great prayer of thanksgiving, uh, con- you know, mm-hmm. ends with the Lord's table. Um, it concludes with the Lord's table, followed by a doxology. So uh, by doxology, that simply meant, means an expression of praise. It's, a, you know, we think of it as the sacrifice of praise, mm-hmm. you know, at the conclusion of the Lord's table. So uh, we, um, so what we do is, you know, um, we, there is an element that is part of this prayer, which is uh, the, the confession. And, uh, and so 
you know, we treat it as a responsive reading in our in our church. And so it begins with the person who's sort of leading, um, you know, uh, leading the responsive reading that day. And so the person starts, for instance, and this is what we say. The person says to the group, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Therefore, we confess and we say this out loud. We respond, right? You know, response, revelation and response. So, and we respond, uh, you know, we have left undone those things which we ought to have done. And we have done those things which we ought not to have done. And there is no health in us. And, and so the person leading then says, even so, even if that's the case, we didn't get it right. We omitted things or we, or we did things. We, you know, we should, we committed things and we omitted things. We, mm-hmm. we were not right yet, you know? Right. And, and so the, the person leading says, even so, Jesus wholly assumed our human condition yet without sin. And he did those things, which we ought to have done so that we might be healed. And the whole group responds, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. This, we repeat those words every Sunday. (laughs) We, we make that confession together Mm. to one another, corporate confession. Yeah. And we, and, and I have seen over and over again that, that the people in our church group, they've, it's not that we set out to memorize this, but these words have mm-hmm. taken root in their hearts and in their minds. And even in regular conversation mm-hmm. with people, like I, I could be talking to one of our church members, you know, on a phone call during the week, and they might be discouraged about something. And what happens in the middle of that conversation? They say, yes, but there is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Mm-hmm. You know? Or, well, of course I messed up because there's no health in me because I keep doing those things that I ought not to do. And I keep doing those things, you know, and I keep doing, um, and I'm not doing the things I ought to do. Of course, you know, uh, because I need a savior. I sin and I need a savior. I didn't just need him in the moment when I was saved. I need him now every day, you know, but I don't have to despair in this struggle. Because there is no, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. I have seen this form, you know, right. a new matrix <laughs> in the people that repeat these words to one another every week. Um, yeah. You know, we have yeah. framed uh, the, the Apostles Creed, for instance, um, as response again, right? Revelation and response, like, uh, um, like, uh, you know, uh, Andy said earlier. So after uh, Jonathan, my colleague, um, takes turns with Beppe, one of our Italians, and they alternate in teaching um, the scriptures on a Sunday morning. And after uh, the teaching, you know, as a group, we recite the Apostles' Creed every Sunday. Um, And and you say, oh, well, that must get old, just repeating those words. Well, if you're familiar with the words of the Apostles' Creed, I hope they mm-hmm. don't get old for you. Um, but in any case, um, but in any case, uh, the point is the repetition, right? That's what some people take exception to. Um, and yet, is if, if you frame it as response, you say, you know, I've heard the word of God today. This is the word of God. I've heard the word of God. I've received the word of God. And, and yes, I'm affirming. I'm in. I believe. You know? I'm part of this. 
this is my story. Um, uh, I believe these things. I'm part of this. Um, and so, it, you know, as a response, it ceases to be recitation. Um, because it's active. Right. So um, that's, you know, I said earlier, um, you know, in the sense of how it forms our identity. So, and I talked about how, you know, um, it's a story of adaptation, how you use the liturgical forms and fill them with sound, you know, with sound doctrine, with sound teaching. So, you know, um, people are familiar, uh, some people may be familiar with the Jewish Seder, which, of course, it's it's a tradition that you find right. in the scriptures in Exodus, right? And Exodus, uh, um, where it talks about, you know, uh, God, you know, God says, you know, so when your sons, you know, ask you in the future, why did you know what happened here, you know, and you'll respond, right? And so in the Jewish tradition of the Seder meal, they built that into that meal experience, and so there's always a moment where a young person asks, you know, his father. And he says, you know, why are we here? Why are we doing this? You know, what is this about? You know, um, and and the father responds, you know, by mm-hmm. telling the Exodus story, right? And what is the point of this? It's to confer identity. In that case, Jewish identity, right? So, um, so what we did, or you know, what I did when I was crafting, you know, uh, this adaptation of the Great Prayer of Thanksgiving, um, is that uh, there's there's a part of that prayer a traditional part of that prayer, which is referred to as anamnesis. All that means is remembering. That's what that word means. It's a big uh, academic word for remembering. Um, And and that's what the moment is during that prayer. It's like, this is the moment when we remember who we are in Christ. We receive that identity and we say, yes. We respond, yes. This is my identity in Christ. Mm. And so... There's a moment every Sunday and we switch, we switch it up yeah. that we have seven, you know, 10 different versions. So we're not repeating the same thing every week. We go through the cycle. Right. right. So, but any case, uh, every Sunday, so here's an example. So at a certain point, every Sunday, one person, the designated person says, um, this is, uh, this one is the prayer on the topic of abiding in Christ. Right. So he says, who are we in Christ? And we'll end with this. Yeah. Oh. Go ahead. He says, who are we in Christ? Why do we gather on this day to taste the goodness of God? And somebody else responds, just like the son asking the father, right? Um, You know, why are we here? Why are we doing this? And the narrator responds, it's because once, once, you know, before we were without the Messiah, alienated from, uh, from the citizenship of Israel and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, we have access in one spirit to the father. We are no longer foreigners and non-citizens, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's family. God has gifted us with a new family. Thus, we abide together in the love of God and his presence. We entrust to him our accumulated anxieties and taste instead the renewal of our whole being, which begins with resting in his grace and becoming, and it becomes visible in our love for one another. And everybody responds together on Mm. Sunday morning. Mm. This is our story. This is who we are. And, and that, and, and here's why it matters to missions, wherever you are, whatever field, if you're at home, right? If, if you're a sender, you're not even a goer. Um, it, it matters so much because we're so allergic to forms, to any kind of formalism as evangelicals, as Americans, uh, 
that we sever ourselves um, from from the richness of of a lot of that, and the the result is we find ourselves asking questions like, well, how do we how do we disciple people? Uh, how, you know, how do we go to the mission field, and how do we disciple people cross culturally? Well, even if you only have them for an hour or two every Sunday morning. There's a lot of discipleship that can happen just there. You know, I mean, you're describing group catechesis there, right? The, the worship itself, that's, it, that is discipleship. And that's why we do what we do on the Lord's Day. And so, Melissa and Andy, thank you so much for being a part of this follow-up conversation to our initial discussion about liturgy. To get more content, go to missionspodcast.com. If you have any questions or suggestions, email alex at missionspodcast.com. Get more content. And also remember to share this with a friend, uh, rate, review, subscribe, do all those fun podcast things. You know the drill. Thank you for listening, and we will see you next week.